Welcome to the Whiteness in America podcast. My name is Tom Bell. Welcome back. This is episode number two. I'm glad that you were able to make it back. If this is your first time joining us, thank you for joining us. Check out podcast number one with a special guest, Joshua Trinidad. And this week's guest is the amazingly brilliant Melissa Harris. Melissa is a social studies uh, for English learners teacher in the Baltimore Public Schools. Uh, we had a great discussion. We talked about her experiences growing up, her racial identity, and the, uh, how it intersects with being a teacher in Baltimore, disrupting whiteness in education, and her thoughts on white savior teachers. Great episode. We'll get to that soon. Uh, but before we get to our discussion, I want to talk about a few interesting items uh, that are happening right now. First, uh, a kind of a plug. If you're interested in doing some reading, uh, the talented and amazingly brilliant Dr. Robin D'Angelo dropped uh, her book in the last month, I think, uh, late June, called White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. In my own research and my own exploration of whiteness, Dr. D'Angelo has been foundational. Also of interesting note, on August 7th, Frontline PBS and ProPublica will be airing a documentary called Documenting Hate, Charlottesville, in-depth analysis of what happened in Charlottesville, you know, where the president said there were good people on both sides. And it really looks at white supremacy, the rise of white supremacy, and how whiteness, in the comments of the president, allow the voices of white supremacists to be uh, continue to have a space here in this country and, and to uphold white dominance um, in an aggressive way. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. We'll be talking about that in depth once uh, the documentary comes out. I'm hoping to have a few people come on and uh, kind of dissect that. I think that'll be interesting. Let's get to our guest today, uh, Melissa Harris. I'm really excited to have her here. Well, welcome to the podcast. This is super exciting to have you here. It's exciting that you're doing this. I can't wait to see how it evolves. Me either. I, I have no idea what I'm doing, <laughs> clearly. And so it's been kind of entertaining um, getting everything up and running. But so, Melissa, tell Who's us. Who's your about, intended audience? Um, well, you know, I really, I'm, that's a really good question. I, I think I'd like it to be a mix of folks. So there's going to be some content that is more academic and more educational focused. And then there is some content that is good for, I think, everybody. I mean, I think it will be good for everybody, but I think some of the stuff, like some of the people that I have lined up for a few episodes down are, like, they're heavy researchers in whiteness. And so, like, I'm trying to think about my mom, right? So my mom listens, and my mom listened to my first podcast, and she's like, oh, she's going to be mad at me that I'm bringing this up. Um, but she, she, she's like, it was really good. I have some questions to ask. That's my imitation of my mom voice. I have some questions to ask you. I was like, oh, okay, this will be entertaining to see where this goes. But I, I think part of the reason I wanted to do this is I wanted to start finding a different way to talk about race and racism outside of social media because I was finding whatever I was doing was ineffective. And I was finding that anytime I was getting in the conversation or having bringing things up, it was just it became vitriol and it, it was not effective. And so my area of research and understanding is whiteness. And so I figured, well, why not do this? So, mm. so why'd you agree to do this? I know tough questions off the bat. Well, that is a tough question. Um, you, you actually approached me at a time when I, I've been having a lot of conversations about, I mean, everything is a conversation about race. 
um, because I, I live in Baltimore and I teach exclusively refugees. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Yes, I teach English to speakers of other languages. Oh, okay. So 100% of my students, uh, English is not their first language. Fascinating. So, yeah, so I exist in this world. Baltimore is a majority black city, but the corner I teach in southeast Baltimore, and I live in southeast Baltimore, uh, is an immigrant enclave. Oh. So within this, you know, the city itself is the opposite of the national, uh, I guess, racial average, mm -hmm. uh, with the United States being you know, more white. And, and Baltimore is almost exactly the opposite, about um, like 60, 70% African-American. And then this huge growing immigrant population that's primarily Spanish-speaking, but from many, many countries. And we also have a huge Arabic population and a an, uh, like Black African population. Um, Middle Eastern uh, students are, I mean, it, every country has every color. <laughs> so uh, it's, it comes down to culture and not color. And it's, uh, and there's a, there are a whole lot of things that are always happening politically in Baltimore. Uh, we had, you know, riots a few years ago, uh, lovingly dubbed the Baltimore uprising. Right. And I'm currently working with an author of a book called the my Baltimore book. It's written for third graders, but I teach it to my high school students because the, the language is, uh, symbol and she's revising it and we we had a meeting to talk about how how to include the baltimore uprising in a factual way uh, and, and and how do you how do you do that so talking about the facts of race is i, I don't it's, it's got to be possible uh, <laughs> but it's it's really difficult how do you racially identify? Um, I'm a card-carrying member of the Sioux Tribe of Chippewa Indians, but uh, I I will cop to being white because I am. I just have a, a tiny bit of of Native American. But uh, you know, if I'm if I'm looking in the mirror and being honest with myself, I am pretty white bred. Well, and, and you brought up something really interesting too. Um, you know, you said it's it's not it's not about the color of someone's skin, but the culture. And I think that adds to the component that race is a construct. So it's been created, right? So race, the concept of whiteness has evolved and it continues to evolve. And that's what whiteness scholars believe is that it, it will. It's kind of like a moving target. It, it forever changes and, and modifies as this thing of of dominance and privilege in the United States and those that have access and that can accumulate this, this piece of whiteness. Um, it's like a private club, a secret society, if you will, that everyone knows about. No one really wants to talk about, but everyone knows about it. Mm -hmm. But it has these cultural implications too, um, particularly I think what, with what you're talking about with what's going on in Baltimore. What took you to Baltimore? I guess if we can back a little bit, what, why did you end up there? How did you end up in Baltimore? Because you, you grew up in Michigan, right? I did. I grew up in Cadillac, Michigan, and then went to uh, Grand Valley State, where we met for my undergrad. And after I got my bachelor's, I went to 
a school called University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC, for my master's. And what did you get your master's degree? Uh, my my bachelor's was in uh, political science, and my master's is in public policy uh, with an urban policy focus. And now I'm a teacher. And here you are teaching. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, so I got my master's and then went into policy work. Uh, worked at a couple of nonprofits, did like business attraction and retention for the city of Baltimore. Um, under, uh, I guess, the somewhat naive idea that a rising tide will lift all boats, I wanted to improve Baltimore by bringing businesses here uh, that would bring jobs in biotech and, you know, the military sciences. And after two or three years of that, um, I was really done. Not, not, not helping anybody at all, <laughs> essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because the people who get those jobs are educated and don't really need help. So I went into teaching. <laughs> And now work on the ground, and I'm just kind of, uh, kind of here. I, I talk about moving all the time because it's a really rough place to live and to bring up a, to have a family. But I'm here, and I'll probably stay here. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that because uh, a lot of the folks that I work in Flint, you know, and so. Um, a lot of our partners in the Flint schools, they'll say that. So if a teacher can make it through a, f- a couple of years working in Flint, they're, they're, they're bought in, they're, they're here, they're lifers, they turn into yeah. part of the, that. And I think, does you feel like that kind of happened to you with, do you work in Baltimore public schools or? Yes, I do. Oh, that's exciting. Yes, that is one adjective. <laughs> uh, it, it is. It's exciting. Yeah. It's different every day, and yet it's the same. Uh, it's a it's a pretty rough environment, um, but my school is the environment is difficult, but the people are rock solid. I've got the best coworkers I could ever imagine, and and leaving them is is honestly why I like I I've gotten job offers in in other places, and actually turned them down <sighs> because the thought of leaving the, the people that end up staying, like you say, the people that end up staying are bought in and they're good people and they want to be there and do good work. Uh, and it needs to be done. That's great. That's great that you're committed to staying there. What, what about the content in the population that you teach with? Why, what drew you to that? When I started teaching, I I actually have three certifications. Um, I went in as a social studies teacher coming out of political science and public policy. Um, that was what I was most qualified for and most interested in. So I did that for three years, and then I got uh, my ESOL endorsement. So now I teach social studies to speakers of other languages. Um, I teach U.S. history, world history. I've taught government. Um, And I also just recently got a special ed certification, but I don't plan on teaching special ed. It's it's a very niche area. Um, 
English language learners with special education needs are grossly underserved. So I'm trying to trying to work on that as best as I can. Uh, that's awesome. And that's a population that's uh, underserved here. We are in desperate need of EL teachers, um, you know, that, that have the TESOL or ESL, depending on the state. I know the language differs for the type of endorsement, but we, we definitely need folks that have that ability and skill set to um, work with populations here. Um, so kind of shifting the conversation a little bit about your work with your students, um, where do you see your whiteness occur for you in that, in that teaching? And I'm just, I mean, you brought it up right away of how can you not think about race? Um, yeah. So wh wh where do you see that manifest mostly? On a daily basis? Um, I suppose we, we joke about it a lot, my students and I, um, because I'm always the only white person in the room. <laughs> Um, now, if you were looking at a palette of the people in the room, I'm not the only light-skinned person in the room. Uh, a lot of my students, if they keep their mouths closed, could could easily pass for white, quote-unquote, because they, their skin is white. Um, but they're not culturally white. They're not from the United States. So it's it's pretty pretty understood that I am the white person in the room um, and because I I teach United States history um, the uh, I don't know the students make a lot of jokes about uh, my white version of history because <laughs> they've they've learned they've learned things differently right um, right down to you know, sometimes the, the number of continents, <laughs> um, you know, like we teach seven, sometimes uh, students are really certain that they've learned it's five in the past. And I'm not sure how that works out, but it's, it's a consensus that in some countries they learn there are five continents. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, we, we joke about it. There, you know, cultural references, music. Um, the fact that I can't dance, the food that I eat, uh, you know, <laughs> salads, granola. Right. <laughs> but it's also a very short jump to, you know, uh, indigenous style cooking, you mm -hmm. know, where, where my students come from. Not always, but a lot of times they didn't cook with electricity. Uh, and it's, it's, it's all fresh foods they don't really eat a lot of processed food because somebody at home is always cooking. So, you know, culturally different, but essentially the same. Interesting. Do you feel like you have to make an effort given the content that you teach not to totally, cause it's really easy. And, and I don't know how you learned history in school, but it was very, it was very European. It was very white centric. It was very Western civil oriented. And in order to, to provide that counter narrative, do you find that, and, and make it relevant to your students, do you find that um, you have to push the curriculum a little bit that's given, that, that's approved by, well, I don't know how Baltimore works in terms of like curricular pieces, but like the way that you choose to instruct, I guess, um, you know, particularly because you're working with English learners, 
um, you know, there's got to be ways that you modify that. Or do you find yourself having to do that more often than not? Or is it pretty supported in the Baltimore schools to, to challenge traditional white narratives of history? Yeah, wow. My answer to that is so long. Um, well, that's good. We got all the time for that question. <laughs> in short, one of the reasons that I like teaching in Baltimore is that I'm not micromanaged because they need bodies that can do a good job. And once you're an established teacher, you have immense amounts of freedom in the classroom. I don't have a curriculum. Um, I have total freedom to teach whatever my students need. Now that's because I'm teaching uh, content courses that aren't tested by a standardized test. Um, government has a curriculum, you know, English, algebra, they have curriculums, but world history and United States history don't really. So, and nor does Esau, if you're teaching um, actual English language, that doesn't count as English English. So you're completely free to do whatever your students are interested in. Um, that being said, <laughs> I absolutely i push i push it so far that sometimes i even question myself um because you know i don't know if you ever took this course when we were at grand valley with um ott his name was ott ott and he was yeah he was uh, sort of an excommunicated Catholic priest. Um, I think he had chosen to, left, to leave his church because he believed in this idea of liberation theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the um, historical figures that he was assassinated for his, his belief was uh, Oscar Romero. And he was a liberation theologist and he believed that the purpose of the church was to lift up the lowest of the low, to educate, to support, and to help people. And as a teacher, that's what I think my role is. Um, sort of liberation education. That it's very furrian of you. you know, <laughs> I, um, well, I have this prayer form and most of my students, uh, more than half, the majority, are not documented. And, you know, one of the things that I make sure everyone knows is what your constitutional rights are, despite the fact that you're not a citizen, mm-hmm. that the government would call you illegal. You know, you are still protected by certain amendments of the Constitution. What do you do? If ICE comes to your door, you know, how do you get a job? How can you function and be a productive member of this society that you're choosing to live in? Um, How can you make your life better and your family's lives? And by doing that, making this city a better place, the state, the country, um, everybody's lives are better when immigrants' lives are better. And... A lot of what I teach is uh, has has sort of a social responsibility bent like that. That you know, if I were to go to uh, 
the middle of Ohio or the middle of Michigan and somebody looked at my lesson plans, I probably would not last very long as an employee in that school. And that's unfortunate, you know, and I think that's one of the things that I, I, why I do what I do, I think needs to change. But you're right. I, you know, there's in particularly in districts around here, the, the overly suburban districts that are really pushing um, test scores. <laughs> and if you you deviate outside of that, and turn, particularly for science, social studies, and math and literacy, it's it's it can be really challenging for a teacher to be successful if you deviate out, outside of that. And so, yeah. um, and that is true here. For, also, I just I'm I'm lucky enough to teach a content that's not affected by that. I have so many questions that are kind of in my head after this. And I, I guess I want to get to one. I want to know what was an, uh, what has led you to being somewhat of a disruptor? Because it seems like even when I met you in undergrad, I think you were a first year student, maybe you were a sophomore. I can't remember. I think you were a first year student. Um, you, you were a disruptor. You, you pushed boundaries. And I think that has followed you through your career, it seems like, and you seem like you're someone that wants to create social change and, um, you know, has led you to being a disruptor. And how do you navigate not becoming the stereotypical white savior, like putting yourself in that lens and that role that we see in movies where you see this white educator come into an overly predominant student of color district and quote unquote, try to save you know, rather than lift up. Because when you use the term lift up and liberate, it tells me that you're fighting that and disrupting that particular piece too. So, yeah. Yeah, well, the, I, I call them missionary teachers. <laughs> the, those white teachers. And Baltimore has many, 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 because we have a lot of alternative certification programs for educators, which is how I became a teacher. I, I didn't, I, I still don't have a teaching degree, um, and this is my ninth year, and I don't, I don't really ever intend to get one, um, but I came through a program called the Baltimore City Teaching Residency, which is now called the New Teacher Project, and I'm familiar Program with uh, is also here. Yep. Yeah, so it's, it's basically a six-week boot camp. Um, you go during the summer, and they teach you how to teach in six weeks. And then you're in a classroom as a full teacher. And, you know, TFA gets a really bad rap um, because that's most people see those kids coming from affluent backgrounds and doing the missionary savior thing for a few years and then leaving. Um, and, you know, I did come through one of those programs, but. I don't know. I I started off teaching, you know, Baltimore City kids for three years, and um, I don't I don't think ever once I thought I can save you. Uh, we we don't we don't know how. Um, nobody knows how. If somebody knew how, there wouldn't be problems. But I um. <clears throat> There are a lot of things politically happening around Baltimore, and and I've I've been having this recurring argument with uh, someone that I'm close to about why 
white people should never lead a resistance movement or uh, uh, the fight for equality. Um, you know, I, I feel like we should never take leadership roles in movements like that because there are plenty of qualified people who live in that skin, who live these experiences, and we don't. I can talk about things academically. I can teach you your rights. I can tell you about what has happened and what is happening politically uh, it, it, that is of interest or concern. But... I don't know. I guess I've I've fallen into this role of just like I'm providing information and encouragement and building confidence and just really hoping that the people who need to get out there for themselves will get out there and change things. Um, you know, I go to protests, I go to marches, like I, I stay somewhat involved in things like that, but uh, the the great thing of one of the great things about Baltimore is that there are a lot of people of color leading those things, and you know, unfortunately, a lot of the elected officials are still white. Right. But um, you know, hopefully, hopefully that's changing. I think that's really powerful what you said about finding ways to still support without centering because i think what happens is that white folks tend to center themselves even though the experience or the the cause is about someone else because i'll speak from my personal experience because my lived experience has been so much about me in the middle right the i see myself in the textbooks i see myself teaching the class i see myself in government officials i see myself on television even though when i've been a part of leading movements or being a part of social change, it, uh, there still sense, tends to be this want to center this, this white experience. It's being done, it's it, critical scholars call it interest convergence. So I'm allowing this to happen as long as I'm part of the leadership and I can manipulate and structure how it will still move, but potentially still benefit me, right? So we see it at universities where We'll be a part of a change process. We'll be a part of creating change as long as there's some aspect that still has an interest to serve the greater institution, which is still perpetuating this white hegemonic structure and system. Um, and I think that's really interesting you bring it up too, because one of the most powerful conversations I had um, after my first year working here in Flint, and we were working, we were meeting with some community members. There's a bunch of us in a room and we were trying to figure out how to get this grant to do some work. And this um, uh, woman, uh, uh, a woman was in the room representing the, the Flint, Flint area uh, group. I can't remember which group she was from. She's African-American. Um, and, and she blatantly just said, I'm tired of the university doing to us. Give us the resources. Let us lead it. You support us with the things that we need. We'll come to you but stop telling us what we need. I don't want to complete another survey for you to, to take back and then tell us what we want, like tell us how to do it. We're going to do it ourselves. And I think that that's interesting what you brought up about the liberation piece, because that's really what, what it is. I mean, that's part of being an educator is 
providing the liberatory opportunities for someone to own their lived experience. You know, and that's the, the, the basic fundamental of like a Frarian philosophy of teaching is that you give someone the skill set to learn, to educate, to read, and you unlock those pieces and that empowerment for them to, to run with that. And I think that that's really powerful for white folks to hear is that um, it's not about you. <laughs> so Right, right. And, and to do that without your power, your control is, um, it's not something that people like to hear. Yes. Um, uh, the, the conversations that I've uh, do you know by any chance do you know who DeRay McKesson is I don't think so I hesitate to even bring up this name because out here he is so controversial um, he worked for America and he was one of the leading faces of the Black Lives Matter movement especially coming out of Charlottesville um, and the Baltimore riots uprising and he <laughs> worked for Baltimore City Public Schools in the middle of it all and um, he's had some like somewhat controversial <sighs> points of view but not really uh, you know just saying hey like if the if the police could stop killing black people that would be that would be great right um, you know but he didn't he didn't say it for white people you know he was angry and was angry you know didn't try to tone it down and uh and he he didn't try to make anybody happy. He said what he wanted to say, and oh man, it's um, it's been so controversial out here, and really, uh, people really, really have strong opinions about um, you know, some some leaders in this movement, uh, like Black Lives Matter is, is huge in Baltimore because, you know, we we had um, uh. Uh, <laughs> You're a significant several, player, yeah. But one high-profile shooting out here, and you know nobody went to jail for it, and uh, yeah, it's just so it's so complicated, and and it's almost to the point where like I can't, you know, I, I work with a lot of really liberal. Uh, open-minded, you know, woke <laughs> folks, and and that's wonderful. But you know, outside of my professional community, it's really difficult to even talk about some of these things because people are so divided. Mm. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I'm not really going down a linear path here because it, <laughs> in my mind, this is all scrambled up. And, uh, but it's all connected. It's all connected, and it's just so complicated. He and everybody's feelings get in it. He ran for mayor. He did. He did. Yeah. And he, but he didn't win. I'm assuming. 
he didn't. Um, there was a lot of, he made a lot of enemies here. And, and I truly don't understand why. That happens Especially when you speak the power, teachers. though. That, but that happens yes. when you speak the power, right? And, and I think it happens with te- te- teachers are, you know, I as lived my life as an educator in a professional sense. Um, I never taught in PK-12, so I'm a little bit of a fraud in that area. But, like, working in higher ed, working as a professor for a little bit, an assistant professor at a university for a little while, and now doing this. Um, teachers, you know, 80% of the teachers in the United States are white. 90% in Michigan are white. Um, wow. Yeah, it's, it's unreal when you look at the national data. And teachers because of the pressures of the systems that are being put in place with um, evaluations and the increased pieces, you know, and, and at the end of the day, teachers aren't what I'm learning in my study and my research is in, in doing a bunch of review of literature is that we're not taught to talk, we being educators aren't taught to, taught to talk about identity. And when your identity is the dominant, dominant um, group and you are part of the dominant narrative, you then become really color evasive. You you don't want to talk about it. And so when you think about these things, then you start perpetuating the status quo, one, because it's easier to do that, and two, because sometimes your livelihood's at stake. And so, you know, we're, we have um, race-neutral policies and teaching and learning. Everything gets diluted into we need to, quote-unquote, teach to all students, but yet what that ends up meaning is that folks don't really know how to do that because they've never really been taught to engage culturally. They've never really been taught to engage outside of their lived experience. Um, They may have had a field experience in a quote unquote urban setting where they went and Mm -hmm. basically were voyeurs in a public school in a, in a city for, you know, 16 hours or 30 hours over a course of a semester. But that wasn't deconstructed in a way for them to understand it. And then they built up all these cognitive understandings of what, oh, and I even see it with some of our students here. This is what it means to be in, in this particular school. These, these are the quote unquote students that go here. And it's like, oh my God, we're, we're doing a horrible disservice. So yeah, I don't think educators are taught on how to talk about race. And I don't think they can critically think about their own identities either. Um, and, and a lot of times, um, there's that uh, Robin D'Angelo, I'm going to use a really funny way, way to praise this. Robin D'Angelo uh, just dropped her. Uh, Robin D'Angelo just dropped the latest book um, on fragility, uh, white fragility, and it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm about halfway through, and um, the stuff that's in there is really. It, it's not in teachers. It's in general, but like, it puts people in a position of fight or flight when they're dominance their racial privilege is is brought up in public in private in conversation and so and because white people don't have to talk about it they don't they obfuscate well i mean i you know and this is a tangent sorry but you know when you look at where the president has been on any issue that touches race which is a lot uh, whether it's immigration it's the NFL players kneeling. It's always mm-hmm. it, dis- it, it distracts from the 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 ingrained fabric issue of that we are a racist society. We have racialized experiences. We have created a racial caste in this country, um, and there's avoidance in it. And so instead of you know his latest tweet last week about NFL players should be fined for blah 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 kneeling. And then maybe, you know, be kept out a whole season. What other avenue 
do those individuals that are playing football have to advocate and express um, their opinions about the harm of black and brown bodies in this country? So instead of yeah. talking about that being the issue, we're still talking about whether or not a football game is the appropriate place to do that. We're stuck on something that doesn't matter when we really need to be talking about what matters. So I digress. But yeah. But it's I mean, all connected. Honestly, I mean, you you asked a while ago about how um, like how I, I got here mm-hmm. to this um, I don't know take on things, but I um, I mean, Grand Valley was so formative for me, and I I had grown up in this tiny little white town, and I only remembered two. Uh, people of color in my school, in my grade, certainly. And one girl was adopted by a a white family and the other boy was uh, African-American and and in his family and moved away at some point. And and now I go back at yearbooks and it just looks so strange (laughs) in pictures. Uh, And you know, I always just had an innate sense that this is this is silly. There's something a little bit off here about some of these conversations that I hear happening uh, and some of these opinions that I was surrounded by. But at Grand Valley, I mean, the students, you know, the students were not incredibly diverse, but my professors were. Um, I had... I had professors from all over the place and and some of them I'm still friends with and we still speak on a regular basis. Did you ever have Steve um, Buckridge in history? No, no, but I, I do know who that is. He was, he was the one for me that, um, cause he was the first, the first history class I took was his and, um, you know, being, um, not from the U S um, being a man of color, and just totally flipping my perspective of <laughs> of not centering the white experience in history helped push my my viewpoint, um, which was already toward a social justice bent because of other things, um, but really gave me some foundational gravity toward that. Yeah, I agree. There were some really powerful faculty at Grand Valley that I think that were good at shaping that. Yeah. And a lot of ones that it's weren't. amazing. Yeah. Yeah, there were some that weren't, but I mean, my experience there on the whole was, you know, learning about gender politics from gay men, learning about, you know, East Asian philosophy from a Tibetan woman. Um, and just uh, learning about the civil rights movement from somebody that had participated in it and marched at Selma. Uh, really, really valuable experience, and and I do feel guilty regularly for being a white teacher. Um, you know, I can't change it. <laughs> I do the best I can with it, but I can't give my students the experience that I was given by learning from that diverse faculty, and and it was so formative. Uh, in so many ways. I mean, I could just go on and on and on and tell so many stories, but it was um, very, very valuable 
to learn about things from non-white people. Yes. Yeah, and I think that that is a credence to the value of higher education in some sense. You know, I know that there's been a lot of question, and I even question sometimes whether or not we are moving in a pathway where universities are, um, and I, my business is higher ed, um, of, of really, because we're, we're so expensive, uh, you know, even some mm-hmm. less or non-traditional types of institutions are still, it's, it's an expense. And I think when you look at it from a, a strict sense of a four-year or more longer degree leads to job, then you're not necessarily going to see an immediate return on investment in that area. But I think you are touching upon those intangibles that you get from, um, even though we were arguing about or making fun of the liberal arts um, gen ed experience, that's what you get from a four-year institution. And that's what you get from a really robust experience at a university or a college is that perspective that challenges and, and brings you more knowledge to be a better human. And when you remove the yeah. equation of just job, and I know that's a privileged perspective, um, mm-hmm. but it, it adds to that ability to, to contribute to society on a greater level than simply just getting a job. Um, I was um, Before you go, I know you're on a limited time, and I have one more question. I, I want to read a quote because you brought up something that was really interesting to me. I'm a, I love... Um, uh, pop culture. I'm not really up to date with pop culture, but I really enjoy dissecting and understanding television and, and movies and comedy. And I was watching the show Dear White People on Netflix and episode, I think it was episode eight of season two, um, one of the lead characters, she's a black woman, brings up this concept of white guilt. And, and it's really interesting. She says, no one asks you to feel guilty. The only thing that brings it, the only thing that your your guilt brings is platitudes, accolades, and and cheers to make you feel better what i need from you and everyone who benefits from this thing called whiteness is to acknowledge it is a fabrication and do the hard work to dismantle it and i was like wow if i could just (laughs) sum up you know a lot of the conversations i have with you know teachers and even myself about this concept of guilt and where when it manifests and when it doesn't and i just like remember that piece that's really powerful um so that leads me to my last question. Um, and then if there's anything else that you want to bring up or talk about, we can. Um, where do you see in this topic of whiteness? How do you see it um, being disrupted in the way that you teach and manifesting in the way that you experience your, your role as a teacher? Specifically for me, I I suppose I do my best to dismantle whiteness by teaching students how to operate safely within these institutions of education and law enforcement specifically out here because um, our, like the Baltimore City Police Force is in the middle of a really big scandal a huge corruption scandal, which people on the ground have known about for a long time. But we, we as white people, we've built these institutions to maintain control. I mean, not explicitly. Um, You know, the police aren't going around 
explicitly enforcing racial stereotypes um, and, and nor is, is education, but these institutions definitely entrench uh, a, a power dynamic. Um, and, you know, the best I can do is try to teach students that it exists, see it, don't think that if you don't succeed, it's because you failed. Um, you know, that's, that's one thing that's really tough because especially, you know, for American students, but, but also for immigrants, like the idea that if you work hard enough, you can have the American dream. That idea, I believe, really entrenches these racist principles that it's your fault if you don't succeed. And, and I, try, I try to teach students that it's not always your fault. You exist in a context that affects you. Um, you know, when uh, one, one fish swims by another fish, and the first fish says, how's the water? And the second fish says, what's water? <laughs> um, you know, like trying to, trying to teach the context and then trying to do, do my best to, you know, teach kids, like, how do you not get killed by the police? <laughs> how do you not get harassed? How do you go to college? Um, you know, how do you get, a salaried job with benefits uh, if, if you're undocumented, you know, if, if you went to Baltimore City Public Schools where the average reading level is uh, we graduate kids that can read at a fourth grade level and a third grade level and sometimes even worse than that. So, you know, I, I definitely, I love that quote because we really, we do need to dismantle some of these things. And it's not a zero-sum game. If, if one group loses, it gains power, it doesn't mean the other group loses power. Um, and I'm not sure how to get, I don't know how to make people understand that. <laughs> so, you know, so I, I do this job because it is, um, it's, it's, it's right work. It's, it's the right work to do. And, you know, luckily Maryland is a very progressive state. You know, you're, you're doing this work uh, from the bottom of the hill. And, you know, Maryland just made community college free for yeah. everybody. And undocumented people in Maryland can get a driver's license if they pay income tax. Oh, I didn't and know that. Yes, you don't need a social security number. You just need a tax identification number, which anyone can apply for. Permanent students are consistently valedictorian in my school uh, for the last four or five years in a row, at least. Wow. And, yeah, yeah, we, uh, we, we send off the best and the brightest to not just community college, but to four-year institutions. Like the, uh, the talent that comes through these doors, you know, is uh, sometimes it's just incredible. And sometimes it's masked by a lot of trauma. But 
uh, you know, we, we do what we can do and, you know, you're, you're working it from higher ed and I'm a little bit lower down, but you know, I'm, I may be biased cause it's what I've dedicated my life to, but I really think that if we, that this is, this is the work that needs to be done to change things. Well, I really, uh, you know, applaud you for your work and your efforts and, and it, it seems like you're doing great things. I would, um, I'd love to have you back on to talk a little bit more about your experience teaching undocumented students and some of the other things that you're experiencing in Baltimore. If you, if you're interested in coming back, I think you'd be great. You've been, Much. I mean, we, awesome we barely even talked about anything, did we? I, I know. And it's been an hour, but really, I mean, like this has been a fascinating conversation for me and I've really enjoyed just catching up with you. It's been great. Yeah. And I hope a lot of people have a lot of questions. <laughs> me too. So, I mean, that's, that's great. I love that. I love that you mentioned uh, that your mom had questions about your first one. And, um, you know, if anybody approaches you with any questions for me, like feel free to uh, put me in contact with anybody that, that I could, I could clarify some of, some of these things I've touched on. Um, Awesome. I would, I would love to start conversations with people about this. Great. Me too. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. I know you have to go. I really appreciate your time. All right. Great. Awesome. Thanks so much, Melissa. Thank you. Keep doing good work and having great conversations. Hey, you too. I'll talk to you later. And that's it for our podcast today. I want to thank Melissa Harris for coming in and talking with us. What a great conversation it was. Thanks for uh, being a part of this. If you have questions, feedback, comments, you can leave them on the webpage at whitenessinamerica.com. All the podcasts are there. I'm going to start having some more blogging content. I've started to figure out what I want the blog to look like, so that, that'll be up there too. That's whitenessinamerica.com. So again, uh, white, uh, on Twitter, it's Disrupt Whiteness. That's one S at the end of whiteness. Uh, whitenessinamerica at gmail.com. And then the website is whitenessinamerica.com. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. I look forward to your feedback, your thoughts, and your reactions. Music.